G'day, my name's Christian. I've quit my corporate job so I can spend more time with my daughters and have amazing chats with regular people in Sydney because life's too short not to do something you love. I hope you enjoy my podcast. Just here in Balmain to pick up Mel Schilling, the psychologist off Married at First Sight. Maths for those people that uh, know the acronym. I wonder how I'd go on a show like that. I wouldn't be able to be apart from my daughters, I don't think, for that amount of time. It's hard enough for three or four or five days that I don't see them at the moment, but I'm pretty excited about this chat today. I somehow feel that I might get some advice. I'll be interested to see what Mel's got to say about uh, how she got to where she is today. She had a long career in psychology and what made her go down the path of trying to help others with their relationships. So I'll be looking forward to this chat. Thanks to everybody that's listened to each of those other episodes and the celebrity chats. Very grateful. So not far away here from the spot in Balmain where I'm picking Mel up. Had to rush out and get a fortunate life, the gift for the uh, celebrities. And I've just about bought the uh, bookstores out of every copy. Don't mind that. But here we are, about 500 metres from Caffeine, the cafe here in Balmain. And we'll take Mel out for about a 90 minute drive around the suburbs. Might head across to Watson's Bay and Bondi, have a look there, get the sea vibe, and then bring her back. She's in the middle of recording Married at First Sight at the moment, so I won't be on this year's episode. Be a red hot candidate for next, unless love falls into my lap along the way. I reckon it probably has a couple of times, but I just haven't been ready for it. But anyway, we'll get to that, I'm sure. Here we are, about 100 metres. I look forward to having Mel in the car very shortly. So I'll explain that to you. That? Yeah, there is. There yes. is actually. Um, but I'll give that to you now. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's my pleasure. Classic. Let me just get the stuff out of the middle for you because that way I'll get the car and the air conditioning. It's quite a warm day actually, even though there's a bit of cloud cover. It's a gorgeous day. Uh, right. So I'll get just a bit of preamble for, I mean, I, I did my pre podcast spiel. Okay. Um, but for those that don't know, uh-huh. Mel Schilling. Uh, there's a bit about you, but um, I don't know much about you because I think that takes away from the romance and the yeah, authenticity. Sure. Um, I know a little bit about you and what you've done, but right now we're going to head towards Watson's Bay. Same as what I did for Fitzy. Mm-hmm. Watson's Bay, Bondi, then bring you back. Great. That might take up an hour, hour and 20. See how right. we go. Let's do it. Um, okay, so could you just pass me that parking ticket, please? Yes. Thank you. Not only to keep it, but if it goes down behind the window, it's lost. It's lost, and then it starts to flutter in the yes. wind. But anyway, now let's get some AC. Get some AC going because it is a bit warm outside. It, is. it says it's 23. Are we recording now? We are. Okay. Yeah, we Hello. are. <laughs> <laughs> so just to give you a bit of context, mm-hmm. uh, I quit full-time work in November last year. Mm-hmm. Blessed to be able to do that, and started Uber driving full-time. Mm-hmm. As a result of that, got the Instagram going, got the Oz Uber number plate, <laughs> and then things sort of developed there with Uber, which is great. So I did some Instagram and some TV stuff for them, which is really nice. In oh, fact, I'm actually doing some uh, more filming tomorrow, oh, which is awesome. Great. And then the podcast came about by me telling all my mates, really, about the amazing people that I get in my car. Uh-huh. And apparently I have a voice that people would listen to, mm-hmm. which I can't hear because <laughs> it's about, I guess it's a bit like you... Maybe the same as you when you when you hear yourself, you're like, I don't want, don't know what the appeal is. And you don't sound like yourself when you're recorded. Yeah, Sounds exactly. totally different. Exactly. So, yeah. but anyway, enough people have said that, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. And 
about three and a half months ago, one of the other dads at my daughter's school mm -hmm. uh, said, well, why don't we give it a go? And here we are. And episode 15 went out last week. Oh, great. Which was Fitzy. And now we've got you in the car. Okay. And the celebrity part of it is just really there to build the audience as well as to give a bit of a diversity to the chats. Mm -hmm. But the passengers and their story is really what it was built around. Right. So luckily enough, I get to have you in the car today. And we'll get to know a bit about Mel and where you started, where you grew up, all that sort of stuff, and how you sure. got to be where you are today. So, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. What a pleasure. Awesome. So, where did you grow up, Mel? Where were you born? Where were you raised? So, I'm a Victorian. So am I. Are you too? Yeah. Where are you from? Frankston. A Franger boy. Yeah, I know. Well, I was from Ringwood. Oh, God. Okay, right. Ringers. Yeah. So, Not similar. Not far away. Similar yeah. demo. Um, I mean, both of us come from the bogan capitals of the world, <laughs> so there you go, we're connected already. We are, we are. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so Outer East really is yep. where I grew up, um, and my family are now further out in the Yarra Valley, which is gorgeous. It is beautiful. Visits. Um, but of course, with lockdown at the moment, we haven't seen any of our family for coming up to six months. Wow. Yeah, so that's tough. Now, whereabouts um, in the Yarra Valley are they? They're in Hillsville. Okay, so they're, and again, unbeknownst to either one of us, my sister worked at the Hillsville Sanctuary for a number of years. Oh, wow. And my mother lives in Wurrialic. Oh, yes. Not so, far at all from there. Yeah, not far at all. So, anyway, there we go. <laughs> a few more six degrees of separation, uh -huh. I think. There'll be more. So, no yeah, doubt. I'm sure there will. So, you, you grew up in Ringwood? Yes. You went to school in Ringwood? I did. What was school life like for you? Uh, so I I loved school, not because of the education, but because of the whole social side of things. Yeah. So school was all about being with my friends, being cool, being, you know, one of the cool kids, smoking, and I was quite naughty. Really? Yes. I can't see that. Oh, yes. I was Did naughty. you get into much trouble? I did. I did get into trouble. I, look, I, I think because I was a little smarter than some of my friends. I managed to remain on the cusp of the naughty kids, but keep myself out of serious trouble. Nice. Look, I probably had detention a few times a month, but I was never suspended. Really? Yeah. What, what did your parents think about that? Oh, I thought it was ridiculous because they knew what my potential was. They were so frustrated. I didn't. <laughs> I had no concept of my own capability right, okay. or potential at all because I was in an environment where in order to be cool you had to be dumb yeah and that was for guys and girls that wasn't a gendered thing that was just the cool kids act dumb that was what we did in in high school in the 80s in that particular school anyway I'm sure that's not universal and so I'd there'd be times I'd be in class and the teacher would ask a question and I'd know the answer but I couldn't put my hand up because I had a rep to maintain. Is that right? Yeah. Did you have siblings? Yeah, I have a sister. She's about eighteen months younger than me. So were her parent? Were your parents? Okay, we're gonna we'll we'll focus on the one that's not in trouble. <laughs> okay. Did they say that to you? Was that sort of like, hey, look, Mel, you know, you you, you can be better than what you are. Um, your sister's doing all this. Was she was your sister in trouble as well, or was right. she doing all the right things? No, she was good. Right. Okay. Yeah. And look, if you go back to us as little tots, I was the kid who was running ahead, climbing a tree or a fence and, and 
getting lost because I was so adventurous and my sister Beck was the one who was holding on to mum's legs so very different personalities. So as growing up you had that no fear? Totally. And is that because of where you grew up? What was, I mean, what no. was your childhood like? I mean, you said you were very, you know, it was more about your friends and, and making sure you were, I guess, respected amongst your peers, even though you were knocking around with some of the people that may not have been as intelligent as you were. Yeah. Um, what was actual school life, or actually home life like? What was, you know, outside of school, what was that like? Stable, really stable. Mum and dad? Annoyingly stable. Mum and dad's still together. Dad was a policeman. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> and mum's a florist. You were pushing the boundaries with dad being a oh, policeman. Absolutely. And so for me, um, hanging around boys who were actually in trouble with the law was the most exciting thing ever. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. what could be the thing that could press my dad's buttons the most? What was the th- what, okay, what was the one thing you did that disappointed your dad in that period the most? Oh, it's, it's very clear. I mean, there were many, but this happened at the end of school when I was... I was actually about to. We'd finished school, and I was, and I was at the end of summer, and I was about to go away to go to uni. I went to Geelong to go to uni to Deakin, and it was literally the night before. Oh, it's so embarrassing! The night before, I was about to leave home, and I thought it'd be a great idea to bring a guy home, and to actually start making out with him in the lounge room, like, am I asking for trouble? Like, this is the night before I'm about to move out. So dad hears us, comes into the lounge room, kicks the guy out, throws his shoes over the back fence and kicks him out the front fence so he has to walk home to Warrandyte in bare feet. <laughs> I love it. What did he say afterwards? <laughs> Not much. Is that right? That was enough? <laughs> yeah. I bet you didn't make that mistake again. No. Well, I moved out so I was yeah, kind of safe from then. Uh, from the what was university day. like? Oh, uni was incredible. So what did you study? I studied psychology. Straight into psycho- psychology? So, and sociology. Okay, right. And a bit of performing arts. Um, uni was, oh, just opened my whole world up. You know, I, I felt like, because I, I had had quite a sheltered, safe, secure, limiting upbringing. Yep. You know, I mean, I, I can't fault my upbringing because it was so secure and it probably has given me this awesome grounding, you know, to go out into the world and feel secure and confident. But uni shook all of that. Yeah, I bet it did. You know, and I threw myself into everything and discovered... Was the rebel still in you, though? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so this is where I discovered this concept called feminism (laughs) that I hadn't been aware of. It's not a bad concept. Right? Yeah, I studied women's studies. So in the sociology minor that I did, I I focused right in on women's studies because this was all new to me, but it just made so much sense. So what, what made you pick that, though? Yes, it made sense to you. But what made, what, what made it stand out? Look, I, I think it was just an intuitive thing. Okay. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't understand the, the political aspect of gender at all. But interestingly, I recently had a conversation with one of my older cousins. She's probably a good 10 years older than me. And I was talking to her about some of the work that I do now with women and building confidence and stuff. And she said, you were always into that. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, when you were a little kid... You were always talking to the other girls about girl power. I mean, we didn't have the term girl power then, but you were always doing that. You were always encouraging other younger girls to step up and be strong and strong like the boys. Do you remember doing that though? No, not at all. 
I was kind of a tomboy. So it's just one of those innate things that you did. Yeah. You just said, okay, and maybe it was directed at your sister. So your sister, go and do this because you had the power to do it, but it's not something you actually remembered. Not at all. Do you think that set you up well for what you did? Yeah, I do. And getting in, getting into uni and starting to put a framework around what what I was naturally thinking and feeling was really powerful. Yeah. And realizing that other women all around the world are working toward the same cause. So university, how did you how did you go? Did there were no there were no hurdles through university? Well, I was still pretty naughty <laughs> in the first couple of years of uni, and you know. The parties. I mean, outrageous. I mean, I can remember one night, <laughs> it was some themed, you know, there's always a themed party at yeah. uni. It was, there was some night and, you know, we're all out drinking ridiculous amounts of very cheap watered down beer. And um, the next morning, I had to go into a lab at, at uni and had to dissect a sheep's brain. Oh. And I think I was probably still drunk. Okay, so why are you dissecting sheep's brains? In psychology, learning about the brain. So the anatomy of the brain. So and I, is a sheep's brain the same as a human brain? It is. It's just a miniature version. Oh, okay. It's much smaller. It's about the size of your fist. Maybe that explains a lot about myself then. <laughs> and your attraction to sheep? Well, maybe not the attraction to sheep. Maybe the intelligence type. But, uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, so out of all the subjects you did through university, yeah. Um, there must have been like three or four that you were doing because to, to cover all those those two aspects of psychology. Yeah. Uh, what was the most favourite? Probably the ones related to social psychology. Those would be the ones that I've taken most into my future and into my career. So about the way we relate to okay. other people. That's what's most interesting to me. And particularly the way we can influence other people through our behaviour and particularly non-verbal behaviour. Anything about body language, I just absolutely soaked up I found that fascinating so what is it and I think we'll probably end up just diverting to bits and pieces mm. here because that's what sure. I love about this yeah. um, body language it's easy to tell when someone's lying if you know what you're looking for what is it that you look for then I mean you must be I mean how many years have you been doing this for now 20 you must be pretty good at what you do I think so. And obviously the you know the kudos to you in in what you do with TV and mm. and uh, Instagram and the like and all of the other stuff that you've done, mm. uh, which is only the stuff that I know about. I'm sure we'll get to the other stuff later. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think you're good at reading people now? I do. Yeah. I, I I do, but I'm going to I'm going to offer a caveat there. Yeah, that's nice. Okay. Um, I I think I think I'm good at it in my professional life. Because okay. I go into a professional mode and I become very analytical and I hone in on what I need to look for. But in my personal life, I'm not as good. And I Is, is that not strange to you that um, professionally you're good at it, but personally you're not um, as good? Ha- have you heard the book, Smart Women, Foolish Choices? <laughs> uh, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's a bit of a thing. It's... it's um, it's not uncommon for women to say things like this. I, I talk to a lot of women and they'll often say, oh, I'm so good at my job and I'm so smart at leading people and making strategic decisions. But when it comes to, for okay. example, meeting men, I choose the wrong ones all the time. Got it, okay. For me, it's not so much about dating. Um, 
because I've, I've been with the same guy for nearly 10 years now. Awesome. But it's, it, I can be too trusting. Do you think that was part of your problem when you were growing up in relationships? Quite possibly. Yep. I mean, a big part of when I was growing up was I just wanted to be liked. I just wanted to be popular and be everybody's best friend. So what, what did you do to be the popular person, you know, to be, to be everyone's best friend? What, I mean, mm. was it, did you spend money on them? Did you, you know, shower them with affection? Was it gifts? Or what, what is it that you did that made them want to like you? That's a good question. I've never thought about it. I think I became, I think I became quite skilled at telling people what they wanted to hear. Yeah, I've done the same for many years. Right. Yeah. Which is a manipulation. You know, that's not authentic communication. I know that now. But, you know, and of course, you know, I've been in many sales and business development roles and I've been able to use that quite intentionally to influence. And, you know, I, I still will, you know, I have projects that I need to pitch to, to a panel of people and I'll, you know, really tap into that persuasive communication there. But I think back when I was a kid... It wasn't sophisticated and it was probably just being quite blatant about telling someone what I think they need to hear and making them feel good, which now looking back, it's probably techniques that, you know, we use in counselling, like building the self-esteem of someone else, engaging with them, you know, showing empathy, all those sorts of skills that I was probably just doing intuitively, not realising that that was influential. Part of what I do, and I'll get to this a bit later, because I, I have a couple of questions that I'd certainly like your advice on. Sure. Um, and dating is probably one of them. But, yep, um, we can go there. Yeah, I'm sure we will. <laughs> uh, the, the, the hardest thing I find as an Uber driver is when people open up. Because yeah. I feel like they're, I'm their Uber psychologist for 10 yeah, or 15 minutes. Sure. And that I really struggle with at times, because some of the stuff that I hear, and, that is, and really the podcast is built around those stories. Right. And people telling them in their own words, from things like suicide to relationships to money, um, you know, to the good things as well, mm. and them then not having any, anyone to express it with. Right. Um, I, I, don't, I sometimes I feel like I'm out of my depth. Yeah. I really do, but I love what I do because for that little bit period of time, people get something out of it. Yes. Um, you like the modern day barman. Yeah, it's actually, that's a really good way to look at it. Mm. I mean, I, I hadn't actually thought of it like that, but anyway. So, look, let's let's duck back because we did mm-hmm. digress a little bit. Okay. Uh, out of university, what did you do? Where did you start work? So, my first job as a baby psychologist was in child protection. So... As a baby psychologist? Yeah, as a new, like, under supervision, like an apprentice psychologist. Wow. Baptism of fire. I was so That's not, got to be a tough space to start. I was so not ready for that. Not at all. What was the most confronting part about that job? Oh, the most confronting part for me personally was when we had to um, implement a PA, which was a protection application, and often we'd have to take coppers with us. So that's literally going into someone's house and taking their children away. So, you know, the really extreme stuff that had to go to court and everything. And... Naturally, so many mothers would say to me, have you got kids? And I would, I was just lost for words because I didn't have, I was in my early 20s, I didn't have any experience to draw on. All I had was, you know, theory and what I learned in my textbooks and I'd just fall to pieces. 
and just say, no, 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 I haven't. <laughs> and, you know, imposter syndrome would just kick in and I just felt like I had absolutely no right to be there. Yeah. And who was I to be taking this woman's child away? Who was I to tell her how she should be parenting? I just, oh, I, I was so wobbly. Was it predominantly women back then? Mostly, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, it was. So did you, when you get in that situation where you've got to take someone's child away and the police are involved, uh, yeah. do you get emotionally attached? That was my problem. Yeah. And that's why I didn't last. I lasted in that job just under 12 months. Um, to be fair, back then, the burnout rate was three months. Wow. So I was pretty oh, proud of myself for making, you know, that queen, making queen it that long. Class. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who started when I started and she's still in that business. Oh, and do you wonder how? Oh, I just admire her so much. I mean, she's risen to the top and she's more in sort of program management now. Right. But, you know, she, oh, wow, I, I think she's amazing. I where where do those do children it. go? The police come in, you, you, you know, the order's given. Mm. Where do they go? In those days, a lot of them went to foster care. Okay. So very short-term, transient placements, which wasn't great for them. No, and look, again, and the book that I gave you, A Fortunate Life, mm. resonates very well with me because, and hopefully you get a chance to read it. Yes, I will. Um, but there's a lot of aspects about that book that relate very, well, very aligned to my childhood. Okay. And having spent a number of, you know, weeks and what have you in boys' homes. Right. Um, and look, we never had the police called. Mm. We were just my parents, my mother, my natural mother, is the one that actually took us to these boys' homes and said, I can't deal with them this mm. weekend. Um, so for temporary respite. Yeah, I'd drop in on a Thursday, pick up on a Monday type thing. Right. Um, and I, I, I suspect there was a social aspect right. to that. And for me and my daughters now, I, as mm. I, I said to you, and you know, previously in a little note to you that single dad mm. um, I don't know I, I couldn't I could never do that I, I don't know I mean there's, there's got to be something drastically wrong yeah. uh, and not a social aspect or no. whatever it is to be able to you know to want to put your children in that in that sort of place but oh. I don't know how you do that as a job to walk into someone's house and say to them we need to take your child away it is the most fundamental What's the word? Um, pain you can inflict on someone. You know, I, I'm going through a form of this right now. I've now been away from my daughter for coming up to seven weeks. She's in Melbourne with my hubby. Yeah. And I'm here in Sydney working. And we've got another five weeks ahead of us. And that is just ripping my heart out. So So what do you do to combat that then? Oh, my God, Christian. I, I'm Yoga is... An absolute saviour for me at the moment. Yep. And the meditation that I do with that, I'm doing that every day and running. I've just I started running again. Awesome. Which is really helping. Um, and staying busy. I've got loads of really exciting potentially international projects and, and local as well on the on the burner. Do you speak so, to them every day? Not every day, and that's my choice actually. Do you think that's because if you did speak to them every day you'd miss them more? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard and she's got she's she's about to turn six and she's going through phases where she'll be a bit standoffish with me which is just her way of coping you know yeah and that's really hard for me you know because if you're there you can address it right but I'm there it doesn't happen no and if it does happen you can you take it on board straight right. away and you deal with it whereas yeah. if you're 
in another country zooming or mm. facetime whatever it is you have no power no and she's one because she's so busy yeah she's one to put the phone down and walk off and go and do something else and here's me staring at the roof <laughs> <laughs> i love that i, love I mean that. when we started out you know because i came to sydney and had to go into hotel quarantine and for that two weeks, it was so much fun. And Maddie would get on the phone with me and she'd play games with me. She'd nice. say, right, mummy, I'm going to hide you somewhere in the house. That is the phone. And you have to guess which room you are or where oh, you are. Not a bad game. Yeah. And then we'd play, you know, musical statues. And she'd sing and I had to dance. And as soon as she stopped, I had to freeze. And, you know, so it was so much fun and engaging. But now I think she's reached that fatigue point. And thank God she's now back at school. Yeah. Because, of course, she's had about six months out of school. Um, so she's... She's distracted and busy and focused back on herself, which is just great for her. You know, that that makes me feel a lot more calm and at ease knowing that she's in school and occupied and stimulated. So after the first job, where did you go from there? So, yeah, I I actually did a couple of roles within the the government, human services. Um, I went into disability services after that intellectual disability services and because I had a bit of a criminal justice background in that I I had written reports for court and I'd presented in court evidence in court and that sort of thing in child protection I ended up being allocated all not all but many clients who were not only intellectually disabled so that's someone with an IQ of 70 or below okay um, but they were also tied up with the criminal justice system why were they tied up in that Many of them were pedophiles um, or just people who didn't have a great understanding of the impact of their behaviour on others, so they were engaging in antisocial behaviour. The pedophile part's a bit scary. Particularly after I had been on the other side. You know, I'd been interviewing children who had been abused and seen that impact you know, getting children to draw pictures of what had happened and that sort of thing. And then here I was on the other side. And this is when I reached burnout. How do you shut off from that, though? How, I, I couldn't. Mean, I, I did not have the capacity it's, it's to do that. It's burnt in your memory, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I actually had, you know, what in lay terms you'd call a breakdown. And, you know, just could reached a copia. Did you see a psychologist at that point? I did, yeah. And what did they tell you? That was my first time of actually being a a client of a psychologist. It was great. It was so good to be able to do that and unpack it. How long did that take? Um, Well, I didn't go back to that job. That resulted in me leaving. That's unpacking it quite well. Yes, it was fully unpacked. And one look, of, that, that, that's unpacking the job. That's not unpacking you. Well, interestingly, and this links back to something that, that we tapped on, um, tapped into earlier about when I was a kid and I just wanted to be liked and wanted people's affection and you know friendship. The thing that I found the hardest about being in those government jobs was that it was adversarial. Yeah, okay. I was going in there as the voice of the government, which doesn't sit well with me anyway, and doing something to this family that they didn't want to be done to them. So there was no collaboration with the client. You know, there was no working together toward a common goal. It was me doing something to them. And that was the main real takeaway out of the, you know, me going to see that psychologist and unpacking why it was so difficult for me in those roles. 
I wanted to do work where I was working with people. Yeah. And I wanted to be working with people who were motivated to change. That was a big thing. I didn't want to be in there offering an intervention to someone because the court told me they had to have it. Sometimes they would have had to, though. Surely, surely an instance where the court said that you need to go in there and you need to intervene. Mm -hmm. Is that because there's a danger to the children? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. So there's there's a necessity for that to happen. Yes. It just wasn't within your remit to go and want to do that. No, it was within my remit, but... Personally. Personally, right. Personally, that's right. So, personally, it was so hard because I'd be in there trying to... I don't want to say force because you can't force someone to change, but trying to almost coerce someone into changing their behaviour with the most dire consequences of them not changing. And that's just... That just doesn't sit well with me. And I realise now, you know, sort of 20 years being able to look back at different types of work I've done over the years and I I realise how much satisfaction I get out of work, whether it's one-on-one or group work with people, when they're engaged in the process. Yeah. And when they're super motivated to change and to get out of that habit and into something new. That's what I love. That's what excites me. Not trying to force somebody to do something they don't want. So you said you, you, Maddie's six years old. Yep. Do you think the impact of what you saw when you were early in your career had any impact on you whether you wanted to have children at an earlier age or um, was it a late possibly, decision for you guys? Possibly. I mean, I didn't have her till I was 42. Okay. So it was super late. Yeah, um, there's probably not much later you can really leave it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And she was an IVF baby. Which is awesome. So I like yes, that. absolutely awesome. So we worked pretty hard to, to get her into the planet. Um, but do you think it had an impact on you, on your decisions around children? Again, with the big questions, Christian, I've never thought about that. So <laughs> thank you. Sorry. That's, that's a great question. Um, perhaps at an unconscious level. Yeah. You know, I spent my entire 30s single. So I wasn't in relationships. I was was that just, by choice? Um, again, it was unconsciously I was pushing people away. I didn't think it was a choice, but yeah, damn straight it was. So why were you pushing them away? I I wasn't ready for a relationship. I Freedom was too important to me. Okay. And I was traveling and living overseas and focusing on a business. Yeah. yeah okay. I, I didn't – I told myself I didn't have time for a partner. Did you, did you find anyone you thought, well, you know what, if the situation is different, maybe? Or you were just absolute... Yeah, there was a maybe. Yeah? There was a one that got away, I think. Um, I guess for everyone there was this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I wasn't ready. I really wasn't. And I'd just sabotage any relationships. So how did you do that? Mostly hooked up with guys from interstate or overseas. That was good. Oh, so yeah. So, well, I'm not here. I can't see. Yeah, you. yeah. yeah okay. That was a good trick. <laughs> That's not a bad one. Yeah. I don't mind that. I became quite good at that. Yeah, I bet. Um, wow. yeah. <laughs> so, where, so your career, uh, we we've gone from the the, the child protection stuff mm-hmm. um, into the intellectual disability side. Mm. Where did you move into next? Okay, so this is where I started. Um, having some career counselling because I thought, okay, I need a big change. I know, you know, I, I think probably around that time, no, I was still I was still under supervision because I, I had to do a, um, a few years like an apprenticeship. Okay. So after I'd completed my grad dip in, in psych, I then did some supervised practice really and you can do that, you know, in, in any any field, any area of psychology as long as you've got, you know, a psychologist supervising you. So I, I started to explore the other 
parts of psychology because I realized that, you know, that welfare space was not for me. Um, and, you know, coming back to that, that drive, I guess, that core value about, you know, working with people who are genuinely engaged in the process and that we can sort of co-create something together, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, I started to look to corporate work and the business world. And I've always been interested in business. You know, that's, that's quite innate and I've, you know, since become quite entrepreneurial. I wasn't back then. I didn't really know that about myself, but I knew I was drawn to business and I wanted to wear a suit. Nice. <laughs> so that was a driver. Um, and look, when I was a kid, when I was in school, all I wanted to be when I grew up was in advertising. That was my number really? one goal. And I did my work experience in agencies. Wow. Um, and interestingly, full circle, I do so much of that work now. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, yeah. there, where are those parallels now? Oh, I, I'm absolutely quite involved in that now <laughs> okay. with brand collaboration and stuff. Um, but back then I kind of realized, okay, I can apply these psychology skills in a corporate environment with people who are motivated and intelligent and ready to change and that sounds more like my bag. So I started doing some informational interviews, you know, where you, you set up a meeting with someone who's basically in the job you want and take them for a coffee and interview them about how did you get to where you got to and what can I learn from you. Okay, nice. So I did a whole lot of that and I met I met a guy who, you know, went on to become a bit of a mentor for me and he was great in that he didn't just offer me a job. He said to me, here's the name of four or five other psychologists who work in different types of consulting in corporate. Go and interview and meet them. See what you can learn and come back to me. What did you learn from them? Oh, gosh, so much. Um, I learnt that, probably the biggest thing, lesson that I learned I would say theoretically from them but it didn't become real until I lived it was that a big part of that job is walking a fine ethical line between the business need and the psychological ethics okay, so what does that mean so for example um, a big part of my first job, so I, the first job I ended up going into was with, it was called Morgan and Banks then, because become Hudson, it's a, it's a big global recruitment firm. Yeah, I know Hudson, yeah. Right. And so I was in there in the assessment division. Okay. And, you know, so every day I was doing psych profiling on people who were going for a job and doing competency profiling and looking at basically comparing and contrasting different candidates and then making a recommendation about who would be best for the job, who's okay. the best fit to the job. And um, Are you talking about an, on an individual basis or on yep. a... Yep. Assessing individuals who are going... So within the recruitment agency, a, yep. rec a recruiter would come to me and say, here's my shortlist. Okay. Give me the results. Yeah. Um, and there'd be all sorts of um, pressures from the business, from the recruiter, from the client, so the, the end business. And, you know, often there would be, again, I was pretty early in my career, you know, there'd be a lot of pressure to make a decision that was going to make someone more money. I was going to say, it's quite onerous on you mm. to have me, Christian, comes and interviews for a job, mm. and then for you to, as an outsider to look at what I've written and or said and then decide that I'm not the right person, yeah. or I am the right person. Mm. Um, surely that weighs heavily. Um, not That part doesn't weigh heavily because I believe in the science. So I used a lot of psychometric tools. 
and my job was to be objective. Okay. And that's what's that's what's challenging about that kind of role because, you know, I need to be you can't be a purist in that role. You know, you can't be like an academic because no. there are real world influences that you have to take into consideration. You've got to be smart, strategic about it, you know. You can't just stick to the numbers. Numbers are important. But there are other factors as well. You're dealing with human beings, you know. So that was a huge learning curve for me, taking the data but then having a real-world view of it as well. Did you ever look at someone's um, overall position and say, look, uh, if they get this job, it'll mean a lot more to them than it will for someone else? No. Is no, that, that's that, the ethical? That would be subjective. Okay. So my job was not to, you know, have a, um, to, to be sensitive to to candidates' needs as such. You were just what, looking at the overall picture. I was looking at what's best for the business. Okay. So which person would do the best job for the business? Have, have there been any incredibly amazing success stories where you put someone into a role and they've just, they've just excelled more than what you ever thought they would? Yeah, loads. Loads yeah. of those examples. But, but probably more satisfying for me was when I recommended against someone but the client went with them anyway and I said okay buyer beware take this person on and here are the risk factors so for example when this person's under pressure they're likely to behave in this way because the data can tell me that yeah like the shadow self so these are the aspects of this person's personality that would be pretty normal when they're in their normal everyday life but when they're under pressure this is going to become exaggerated okay so for example it might be arrogance or it might be you know that in their normal life they might be reasonably detail conscious but when they are under pressure they become rigid so those sorts of things okay. and they always come to fruition you know it's really powerful stuff what does a client say when they when when they've made that choice and all of a sudden that job comes back up on the table. Mm-hmm. We need someone else because what Mel said, <laughs> it actually, you know, it, as you said, it comes to fruition and they realise mm-hmm. they, they made the wrong choice. And look, at the end of the day, it's their choice. Yes. Um, yep. But they are, they are investing a lot of money in getting that yeah. right person. Do you ever think to yourselves, if only you'd done it this way to start with, you would have saved yourself X, Y, Z? Look, a big part of that job was PR in that it, I was selling the the concept of psychometric testing yeah okay getting people on board with the idea of it because it was still relatively new this i'm talking about the late 90s um it was still pretty new and people were very skeptical about it particularly recruiters who and line managers who had been making recruitment decisions based on their gut for years yeah and here was me coming along saying yes your gut's all well and good but you got to listen to the science as well. Can I ask you a question around that part as well, where you just said there were people that made decisions for themselves mm-hmm. and it was hard having someone come in mm-hmm. and tell them they should do things differently. Mm-hmm. Do you think you being a woman telling a man yeah. back in those days, it was harder to hear as well? Yes, and young and blonde and, you know. They... So you think that had an impact on them? Yeah. You know, and if it failed... Yeah. Did they then all of a sudden? Well, that, who's this that little blonde, girl? What would she? Yeah, blonde, that little bombshell blonde. Come in here. And what t- would yeah. she know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How did you deal with that? Because there'd be some people that wouldn't want to work you with again. Yeah. Oh, again, that was a massive learning curve and such a valuable lesson for me because I went on to, you know, not only work as an equal with men, but I've worked in the Middle East and and have 
you know, been in the room with very traditional, um, you know, Middle Eastern men and have gone head to head with them now, you know. So I, it's, it's pretty hard to intimidate me now. You did, know? That, did that scare you at the time, though? The Middle Eastern? Yeah. Or, um, no, no. That was much later. I, I right. had a few few uh, years under the bridge by then. Were there, any, were there any scary moments, though, where you actually had those, you know, head-to-head conversations where, and look, when I grew up, it was the same sort of thing. The w- women weren't prominent mm. at very or very high levels of management. Yeah, sure. Um, there were the few, the rare few, mm. but it was a, it was a man's world. Mm. And I'm so grateful as a father of two daughters that that's changed because yes. I, I, it should be equal in all aspects. We're working towards it, and and more power to you and mm. everybody else that does does work in that space. Mm. And it wouldn't just be women doing that work in that space; it'd be men that's helping sure. in that, yep, that area now too. as well. Yep. Were you ever? Was there ever a time when you were doing that? going head-to-head with someone, you thought, fuck, I'm out of my depth. Do you mean in the Middle East or in the no, West? No, no, in, 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 you know, back In the years, West, yeah, yeah. In the West, where... Yes, yes, and it wasn't so... Yes, so I another part of that job I had was I'd work with, in the part of the business that was called the career transition management part, so this was often older, white, middle-class men who'd been made redundant, senior blokes who'd been made redundant, so all of the ego issues going on Um, and part of my job was to help them prepare themselves for readiness to look for a new job so many of these guys their dignity had been taken away all of their power had been taken away you know they were the big man in their company yep and they'd lost that power and then this five foot little blonde flippity gibbet comes in and tells them that they're they're too aggressive in their behavior and they need to just calm down a bit please so <laughs> how was that received though because not well not well and and look i did learn a lot in that particular role about how to carve out my message appropriately for how the audience. yeah yeah and you know because i i by this stage i was i was all the confidence <laughs> As as my husband says now, I my my confidence outweighs my competence <laughs> in many situations, and this was one of them. And I did stumble into some really, you know, ridiculous conversations where I was out of my depth, and you know, I was maybe relying too heavily on the data in front of me, yeah. and not the person who was sitting there. So big lessons there. Where did you go from there? So from there, I was headhunted actually to another company. Um, which provided um, counselling services into corporates, and I went in there to um, to head up the assessment division um, with them. So that was my first management role. Awesome. Yeah. So. Did you enjoy that? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, the idea of having my own little team to look after and nurture and grow and you know it was amazing I mean again my need to be everybody's best friend and to be liked came out then as it often does when we're in our first leadership roles Um, so I did have a battle with drawing boundaries I found that quite hard is that the social aspect I just wanted to be their friend yeah yeah what pearls of wisdom did you impart on them that still hold fast today I think a lot of what we're talking about now was a, a big theme in my my lessons to them, which was, you know, find that balance between your ethics and your dedication to the science, but keep in mind that you're dealing with people and a business and real bottom line business needs and find a way to balance those two. That's the biggest challenge of that job. 
still a challenge? Differently. Now I balance the, um, the science with other competing needs. They're, they're not, for example, you know, in my media work, yep. um, huge, huge ethical dilemmas I'm presented with on the daily, really. We'll get to that media work in a mm-hmm. minute because I'm absolutely intrigued by mm-hmm. by that, that aspect of it. Uh, so from there, where did you go? You, you, you've got your own um, what team. What did I do next? You're developing, you're developing them and the business. Yep. Where yep. did you Where did you go from there? So I went to another psych, psych psychological consulting business after that one. And what areas of expertise were you were you in at this point in time? So a lot of leadership development and coaching, and this is where I discovered assessment centres, which then became went on to become a big part of my career for probably the next five years or so. So that's really role plays. Yeah. So getting people. So of course. What we haven't mentioned is that I have a really strong performing arts background as well. Yeah, where did that go? Yeah, we haven't touched on that. Yeah. So I have a big life in the theatre as well on stage. Um, and so, you know, for me, getting to do assessment centres and role play was drawing on my acting chops. So I loved that. So where did you do that? Um, well, I did it at uni, but then it was, it was more just in amateur theatre. And What is it about amateur theatre that you love the most? Oh, oh God, I love it. I loved it. I haven't done it for a while, but um, still love it. Um, what is it? It's such, there's such freedom in creative expression. And, you know, back in those days, I didn't get a lot of opportunity to do that in my day job. Yeah. So, you know, working all day in a suit, you know, with stuffy old men, then going home, throwing on my dance gear and my runners and going to, um, you know, some drafty old you know, hall somewhere in the middle of the suburbs yeah. with a bunch of highly creative, over-the-top, extravagant people um, was just the most fabulous outlet. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, from there? So, yes, yeah, so I did that for a bit. And then this is where things got exciting because that's when I left. That was the last time I had a boss. And that, wow. Yeah, that is about probably 18, 20 ago or so. And you decided to do what? Start out on your own? Yeah. Was, so... that, was that hard to do? <laughs> oh my gosh. If you ask my parents. I mean, they my parents pretty much still indirectly say to your me... Your father still hates you for making out on the couch. <laughs> I, I mean, know. what are you talking about? But he does. Yeah, he's got he's that grudge. Remember that. There they go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. It's so true. Look, I, I will bring it up with him next time I speak to him. Yeah, absolutely. And he'll probably just go red in the face and just want to punch <laughs> me. Um, yes, they, they pretty much still say to me, when are you going to get a real job? Not in so many words, you know? They're being nice. <laughs> yeah, being they nice. need, you know, they come from that generation and they need to see me in a nine-to-five job with a mortgage um, in order to, you know, be normal. To justify the, what you do. Right. Uh, what was the hardest part about going out on your own? Oh, just the lack of regularity of income, really. That's the only thing. And, you know, I got over that pretty soon. So I did it on my own for a year, which was fine, but a bit boring. Because I am, you know, I do love that. As you can probably tell, that collaboration is a big thing for me. So a mate of mine who I'd worked with at the last consulting firm, she and I had done a few projects together and just really worked well together because we're polar opposites and had really complementary skill sets. So... I brought her in on one of my projects because um, she went out on her own as well. And, you know, we kind of had a go at testing out what it would be like working together and had an absolute ball. You know, we went up to one of the um, refineries in far north Queensland and we were designing, you know, safety behaviour assessment centres for 
for machine operators and you know we had to wear our hard hats and the whole thing the, the high vis and oh it was brilliant you know we just absolutely loved it and I got to do all this creative stuff designing these you know interesting behavioral you know role plays and and she was really good at all the kind of operational stuff and making it all making sure all the behind the scenes stuff worked and I was out there in the front on the microphone performing and you know we were a match made in heaven until we weren't um so that so then we started well this is actually quite a funny story I, I then said to her look I've heard that um one of the big banks is not happy with their current provider which is another which is a global you know consulting firm you know for the work um to do the assessment centers for the intake of their new graduates every year yep I said wouldn't it be hilarious if we went in and pitched for that work we weren't even a business together yet and she said well I'm game if you are so I said all right we'll go into the pitch I, I got us the meeting and we said how did you get that first meeting uh, my network was pretty strong okay. by that point and you know I'm I'm all about relationships and so that kind of really helped I could sort of ask the right questions to find out who was you know making the decisions and I'd heard the rumors that they weren't happy and that they were going to go to tender yeah and so Prue and I, that's, that was my business partner, we, we said to each other going into this meeting, all right, we'll go into this meeting, but we have to be dead serious. We have to be very professional and grown up. We have, They have to take us serious because we're competing with the big boys here. Well, within, you know, five minutes, we were cracking jokes and being the Mel and Prue show and, you know, <laughs> we just didn't care because we, re- we literally we had, nothing, had to lose. nothing to lose. Had nothing right, to lose. Nothing at all. And so we were ourselves and we just relaxed into it and just brainstormed with them and said, this is how we could do it differently for you. And, you know, we were so agile and flexible compared with, you know, a a pretty big global company who was obviously quite rigid. Yeah. And we won the work. That's mad. It was ridiculous. That is mad. So, you know, within months, it's kind of a blur in my memory, but within months we had to employ like 30 contractors around the country we had to get an office we had to incorporate as a company and we had to find i think it was like hundred and fifty thousand dollars, something in that vicinity in order to buy the assessments wholesale that we needed to use to then go in and assess people for this project so sort of like buying the product that we had to use for the project and we didn't have that money and parents came in well, no. Well, not yet. What we did is we we tried to get finance, but because we had no history as a company, yeah. we couldn't. We couldn't even buy money. So her mum ended up, I think, throwing in about twenty grand, and we just put our noses to the grindstone and worked our butts off and earned the rest of it. That's I don't know amazing. how we did that. We just did it. How long were you two together for? Um, three years. So we won that project and we ran that project three years running yep. and others as well. And, you know, we became an absolutely um, well-oiled machine, but it actually ended up being a values clash for us. So whilst we did have very complementary skills, the way that we communicated and built relationships with, with people was very different. Yeah. And, you know, it ended up, you know, we, we went our separate ways. She stayed in the business. I, I chose to, to get out. Um, she stayed in the business for several years. I can't remember how many years and ended up selling that business to a, a bigger entity. Um, Do you think you made the right decision? 
Yeah, no doubt. Yep. Yeah, because we we were heading in very different directions. You know, You're I, still friends now. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I see her a couple of times a year. You know, we don't sort of move in the same circles, but you know, we're definitely still in touch. Um, very soon after that. I went to Dubai, so I wouldn't have had the freedom to do that, yeah, you know, okay. if I was still in that company. How old are you now when all this is happening? Um, oh, gosh, age is such a vague concept to me. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, Same here. It is now. I'm just trying to think how long. So I'm 48 now, so if I work back, I feel like oh, it's probably mid-30s, I'd say. Yeah. So this is in the middle of that 10-year period where... I'm single. You're single? Mm. Did you like being single? Yeah. You did? Yeah. Until, really? Until towards the end when I got tired of it. But for most of that decade, I did. What is it about being single you like the most? I'm pretty um, stubborn. Okay. And like my own space. How do you think your husband fits in with that now? <laughs> he's the same. Is that right? Uh, he doesn't need his own space as much as I do. Um, but he's pretty stubborn too. Like, we're both alphas. Right. Okay. So it's a, it's a fascinating relationship. <laughs> How did you two meet? We met on eHarmony. Okay, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, you know, people meet through these apps. Absolutely. Um, they work. As a single person, mm. the, the biggest struggle I have with apps mm. is the fact that I've always been told I'm very good at building relationships, mm -hmm. just not keeping them. Okay. So as a re previous relationship manager, yeah. Um, and look, we're just driving through Bondi at the moment. It's just so stunning. gorgeous. Yeah, I'll be here later on having a swim with my daughters. Oh, it's beautiful! Um, and what a day! It is spectacular. So mm. uh, we're very, very lucky. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, the thing I find hardest about these dating apps is that you get excited for twenty minutes. I know. You get on. Yeah. You match with someone. You think. Well, okay. This is it. Okay, oh. I'll put all my eggs mm. in this one basket, and then after 20 minutes, you either stop speaking, or the next day you don't speak, or they go and do something, or mm. you don't respond, and then they disappear. Um, I'm now at the point where I just, I'm really anti the yeah. dating apps, and in fact, I'm now looking for grammatical issues as to why <laughs> not to match with someone. Yeah. You've used the wrong your. Or uh, you've that's used a the wrong serious there. deal breaker for a uh, lot of people. And look, I never thought I'd be that person because mm. I would have thought, you know, again, I, I quite like, yeah, you have to have that connection. The looks are important, absolutely. Yeah. But when you're looking for grammatical issues, yeah, yeah, there's something wrong. Um, are you on the hookup apps or the relationship apps? Relationship. I'm, you know, I want someone that's the next, you know, or the end. Yeah. You know, I don't... Yeah, the end game. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, there was a period there where you get on the... I, don't, I actually don't know which the hookup apps and the dating apps or the actual relationship apps are anymore. Okay. Um, I think there's such a mismatch of all of them. Yeah. That I think that if you said, okay, that particular one is for relationships only, I think you'd be hard-pressed to do it. Right. Um, so I think there was a, certainly a period, having been single now four years... Yeah. Um... And I think my issue is that I think I get into that position where I quite, a bit like yourself, I quite like my freedom yeah. after being in a relationship for 10 years. Yes. And absolutely the right decision to separate. Yeah. Um, and look, if, if truth be known, we probably would have separated a couple of years earlier, but for the kids. Right. Okay. Like it seriously was okay. all about the kids. Yeah. Um, but now, now I'm ready to like, you know do things with someone yeah. you know go away yeah. for the weekends you know, go to life. dinners yeah absolutely yeah and i not well, age doesn't worry me i'm mm -hmm. the age i am um i don't act it 
<laughs> um, I don't think I look it. Yeah. But I think outside of that, You're I think... great for 70, by oh, the way. Oh, Jesus. Well, that's going to put a real damper on any opportunity. <laughs> um, Ladies, he's not. He's yeah. really not 70. No, clearly. Clearly <laughs> not. Uh, but no, I think I'm ready for that next that next person mm. to fill that void. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm pretty excited about it. But I, in your dealings with people, do you find that grammatical... You know, it's as trivial as something like that that yeah, people don't it's match ex- with. It's excuses. Yeah. Like I said, what, what, okay, what are we making excuses for then? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Look, there, there's a lot we could talk about with dating. In fact, I've got a whole online course called The Date, the Date Ready Project. I've seen some of your stuff yeah. on, uh, on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think you've got to have a strategy. I think you've got to be strategic about dating just like you are about your career. But then it becomes like a business. I don't want it to be a business. Yes, but if you do the groundwork, when you meet the person, you're more likely to have chemistry with them if your values and lifestyle preferences and those sorts of things are already aligned. Okay. So it's about the pre-work. And you How know, much time am I investing in this pre-work? It's, it's a big project in your life. You know, I've when I work with clients as a dating coach, I have them with with spreadsheets and the whole thing. It's a project management activity. I'm good with spreadsheets, but that's mental. <laughs> I know. Me- did you I have know. A, okay? Did you have your own spreadsheet no. when you met your husband? No, I didn't. Okay, then how can I have a spreadsheet when you didn't have one? Okay, really good question, because I've learnt the hard way. I've made the mistake so that you don't have to. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you're good at what you do. No wonder you're good at what you do. All right, well, I'll, I'll take some of that advice on board. Well, mm-hmm. I, and again, I've, there's been a couple of dalliances mm-hmm. where met, met, you know, two amazing girls. Right. Um, but it's just timing was wrong. Okay. Timing was wrong. And I think I was making excuses and using my children as that excuse. Yep. Yep. Which is a good one, you know. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good little cop out. Um, <laughs> okay. Are you on eHarmony? No. Okay. Let me tell you why I think it's a good app and why I think it worked for me. Okay. Because, look, it's probably more, it, it's it's at the premium end of the market, so you, you've got to invest some cash in it, but you've also got to invest some time. So you've got to do quite a lengthy questionnaire at the start of it, which puts a lot of people off. Okay. So people who aren't really committed tend to say, oh, it's too hard or it's too expensive. And do people actually spend time reading people's um, blurbs? Yeah. So you, you don't have a long blurb that doesn't result in a big long blurb. But what it does is it, because they've got a, quite a sophisticated algorithm sitting behind the scenes. And so those your responses to those questionnaires comes out, um, it, it, it gathers data about your personality, your values, your beliefs about relationships and all that sort of core stuff. Right. So that's what you're matched on. Okay. So you can't, for example, go into an eHarmony, the eHarmony app and search for people. That's not a, that's not a thing. They're matching you. Right. Right. Okay. Your scent matches. Now, you won't, you won't be into all of them, of course. In fact, most of them you won't be. But I found that the people who were coming into my inbox... Um, I knew that they were there because we had some of that fundamental stuff in common and any of my deal breakers weren't going to be there because I made sure, you know, my profile was really clear. What was your biggest deal breaker? Um, By that stage, a deal breaker was someone who didn't want kids because I knew that I did at that point. Um, (laughs) Heavy metal music (laughs) was something that I told myself was a deal breaker. (laughs) <laughs> that was before I learned what deal breakers actually are. 
because guess who I'm married to? A heavy metal. Right. <laughs> a big heavy metal headbanger. Right? Yeah. So when you two met, what was yeah. it about him that, that ticked all the boxes? His intelligence. Okay. So he's from Northern Ireland, so he's different to me. So that was interesting. Do you think that yin and yang, you know, the opposites attract, do you think that's a big, big factor in relationships? I actually would argue that both opposites attract and like attract attracts like. Because you said that you and Prue were polar yep. opposites, yep. but you got on so well. Yep. Now that's in a business relationship. Right. Does it still happen in physical relationships? Yeah. So Gareth and I, we're, we're very similar in a lot of our fundamentals. So, you know, we're both extremely open to adventure and driven to build our careers and live an extraordinary life and all that sort of stuff is really well aligned and uh, which is great because that's you know we lived in Bali for two years with our baby and you know we do adventure you know when this pandemic calms down we'll be back into it um but we actually and I never would have believed I would say this 10 years ago but we actually have some quite typical gender roles in our communication not in our behaviour at home because, okay. you know, I made it clear I would never vacuum in our entire relationship and I haven't. And he does that with Glee, <laughs> listening to heavy metal music, of course, well, while go. he does it. Two birds with one star. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so we don't have traditional gender roles in our in our behaviour, but definitely in our communication. Definitely. In and what he, way? Well, he's very left brain and I'm very right brain. Right, okay. He's very extremely logical to the point where, you know, at the moment, having been away from him and our babe for, you know, seven weeks, I'm a little bit vulnerable. And sometimes I'll call him and I'll just want him to show me some empathy. And all he wants to do is problem solve. Yeah. Yeah. That annoying battle of the sexes thing okay. goes on there. <laughs> it's hard to escape. Right. Speaking of battle of the sexes, mm. how did you get into TV? <laughs> um, well, it was actually at my cousin's wedding. My There was an MC at the wedding. And my mum, bless her, she she bloody knows me well, that woman. <laughs> they're, they're, they're inclined to be it's like that. It's funny, isn't yeah. it? Isn't it yeah. just this bizarre coincidence? She, she does know me really well. And the woman who was the MC, mum said to me, Mel, I reckon you should be friends with her. She's fabulous and I just think you two would really connect. So mum and I um went up and introduced ourselves to this girl and sure enough she's a tv producer i mean you know who would have known and at the time she was working on a, on a channel 10 show called the circle did you ever see the circle no it was like loosely based on the view in the states it was a, a women's chat show okay that was on every morning five days a week that's why i didn't see it yeah yeah not exactly the key demographic no, no. um and I was chatting to her about, you know, the work that I was doing and being a psychologist and all that stuff and and also that I had this, you know, desire to perform, constant desire to perform. In fact, I nearly got on stage and stole a microphone out of her hand. It was doing my head in that, you know, I didn't get to speak that day. Um, and so, you know, we got talking and she said, well, I, I book, um, you know, people to come on for segments on this show. Would you be keen? I said, well, yes. Yeah, How many ways can I say yes? Yeah. And that was the beginning. And so I started doing a number of quite regularly, actually, little segments on that show. And what were they designed to do? Um, 
it was all about, so I was very much coming from the expert psychologist perspective okay. and talking a lot about stuff like managing anxiety, mental health, relationships. You know, I did one segment one time about, you know, how to talk about money in your relationship and that sort of stuff. Um, and just loved it. And it was such a training ground for me for working with cameras and learning how to speak in sound bites and learning to ad lib and throw my plan out the window and just go with the questions that are asked of me. Um, I'd like to know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like yeah, that's right. And, you know, having come from more of a corporate background, I was used to being able to plan out a presentation and dot points and follow the dot points to the letter and deliver the piece exactly as planned. And of course, in television, there are no plans. They no. go, or well, there are plans, but they often go out the window and you just got to go with it. So that was brilliant. And it's fun to sort of go back and watch some of those early things. I'm quite wooden and, you know, I can see that I'm feeling a bit anxious when the next question's coming my way because it's, oh, they're going to throw me off my script and, yeah, nice. you know, just learning to trust myself, I guess. Yep. And adapt to the situation. Right. Yeah, which are skills that I now use literally every day in my work. So just it was such an important training ground for me. And so started on the, the circle and then sort of started doing some bits on, you know, the project and did a couple of spots on Sunrise and, and then started doing stuff on Today Show on Channel 9 and started to build some great relationships in there. And um, um, anyway, the first season of Married at First Sight went to air and I wasn't in that show at all did you watch it uh, a little bit what did you um, think at the time um I, I was interested i was definitely interested in it because you know here were for the first time ever really psychologists on screen talking about relationships and that was groundbreaking really yep. so i was fascinated by it and it was actually gareth my hubby and my sister beck who said to me you should be on this show you know, you really should be. This this is exactly... It's right in your wheelhouse. Absolutely. It's the intersection of all of your passions and skills and you belong there. So I thought, okay, um, I'm going to create this opportunity. So um, I used my network at Channel 9 to find out who was casting it, got in touch with the casting person and said um you need to meet me and I, I need to share some ideas with you about how we could do things differently yeah so i did the same with uber oh yes prior right. to the podcast right um i reached out to the head of uber australia and said i think so Do his name's dominic right so dominic i think we can do things better at uber oh. and he came back to his credit and said mate yep. love to hear from you Let's have right. a coffee. And we have, and we built a relationship. Amazing. And subsequent to that, I'm doing other stuff with Uber, which is lovely. But ah, I think it's that you've got right. to have that that first, just have a go. Yes. You, you, as you said earlier, you literally have nothing to lose. Yep. The very worst that can happen is they can say no. Exactly. And as a result, you got the gig at Married at First Sight. What was that yes. like when you first were notified that, yeah, you're going to be one of the psychologists on the show? giving your views on these random people coming into a relationship? Do you know what? I wasn't jumping for joy. I just had this calm, yeah, that's right. That's exactly how it's supposed to be. Do you believe in this show? The, 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 I understand the concept the concept of the show. I really do. Mm -hmm. But, and I, I, I've often wondered, if I went on that show, mm. 
what's the biggest barrier for me to want to go on it? One is my children, being away yep. from them. Yep. Yes, I have them week on week off, but I still get to see them a couple of times in their mother's week. Right. And she gets to see them for dinner, you know, once in, in my week. So that okay. works very well. Great. For me, I don't know how I could spend that time away from my girls. Yeah. Um, it's hard for parents. It's really hard. And uh, there are, obviously there have been single parents on the show. Yeah. That have... Always. Yeah, yeah we always have it. them. Yep. Um, bringing people together mm. without ever seeing that person and you mm. talked about that connection and e-harmony yep um that is a polar opposite to that i'm going to challenge you on that okay the work that we do behind the scenes is actually very similar to what an e-harmony does or a traditional indian matchmaker so we are looking at things like personality and values and lifestyle preferences before we match them this is just a bigger version right on a grander scale and of course you know the show has gotten bigger and bigger every year and it's you know it, it has become a form of entertainment okay so you know sure some of the purity of the, the original experiment has been diluted but at essence it's still all about finding love and you know that that ultimate question of can science predict a love match so I do believe in that. And obviously it can because there's been some success with yeah. um, some of the couples. Not as many as what I think people would probably hope for. Well, the thing is what we can't predict is how people are going to respond under the pressure of the experiment. Yeah. We can't predict that. We also can't predict physical chemistry. No, you can't. Just like when you go and see someone from an app. You know, you might have great chemistry via texting. You meet yeah. them in person and you think, oh, God, yuck, I don't even want to be within a metre of them. And I think the thing about the apps is, though, is that, yes, they put up photos that may be recent, but recent for them is two years, whereas yes. recent for me is six weeks ago. Yeah. Um, yes, that's That whole trepidation common. about meeting someone yeah. and them not being what's reflected in their photos oh, is such a so huge concern. It's disappointing. Yeah. When I was internet dating, I just, the overwhelming feeling was disappointment every time. It was like, back to the drawing board. Did you ever walk out on a date? No, I enjoyed dating. <laughs> I mean, there was a guy who interviewed my womb for two hours. Excuse me? He was ready to, to be a dad, and he was pretty much just interviewing my readiness for motherhood. Wow. <laughs> it was a real turn-off. Wow, thank, thank God in some regards you didn't <laughs> yeah. you know, no, pursue that. Right. He was actually the one I dated just before Gareth. Is that right? Uh-huh. Um, what is it about though that, that ticks, you know... That you, that you like the most. I mean, mm. when you go into the set, um, previously, obviously, COVID might be a bit different with this season. Mm. Um, I don't know how you guys are going to be doing it, but when you're sitting in front of these people yeah. and they're emotionally, like the, the emotions that you'd see on that show were all over the shop. Yeah. How do you deal with that? I actually love it. And, and probably, you know, we've talked about so many aspects of my career today and, and so many. Um, so many opportunities for learning yep. and so much of all of those um, lessons and experiences and um, failures and overcoming you know barriers and so on have got brought me to this point and so now when I'm sitting on that couch I feel so in my zone I feel so ready to deal with whatever this couple or this person present to me, whether they're going to cry, whether they're going to yell at me, whether they're going to yell at their partner, whether they're going to physically get up and do something. I almost feel like anything that happens on that couch, I can deal with. 
and I can do it authentically now. You know, earlier in the earlier seasons, I felt like I was kind of playing a role. But now, as I've become more and more comfortable, and certainly my friends say this now, they see so much more of me, just real me, connecting with people and my real empathy and that stuff is just there now. Do you think people on that show are actually being honest when they are are opening up about their feelings? Yeah, look, we, we work our hardest to to get them to do that. And when they don't, it's quite obvious now. And our audience have become wise as well. You know, there were a number of people last season who were not authentic and the audience called them out like that. Yeah. They're not stupid, are they? No. Uh, I touched on it earlier about the people that I get in the car. Mm. And for me, this is the biggest the biggest issue. And I, not that I'm anywhere near your level and I never will, I never won't profess ever to be, but the biggest battle for me is having people in the car that, uh, you know, especially mental health at the moment, mm. probably being so prevalent with everything that's going on. Um, and I had one girl who was in the car saying the only reason she didn't commit suicide is that the rope broke. Oh, God. And my empathy towards her was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had another, I mean, I had a girl called Connie on episode nine, mm-hmm. who was a six year recovering alcoholic. Um, she was 70 days clean when I picked her up and she was going to day rehab only right. a couple of months ago. And I got emotionally involved with her as a passenger because when mm-hmm. she got out of the car, I kept thinking, as a father of two daughters, what would I do in that situation? And actually, yeah. I got quite upset because mm. I just hoped that I would have the relationship with them that I do now in future years, scared that maybe I won't. So mm. I don't know what to do. I actually don't know what I should be saying to these people or, um, you know, the podcast is fantastic because it's great, mm. got great content, mm. but sometimes I'm a bit lost. Well, you know what? And maybe this will help take some of the pressure off you. By opting to engage and have conversations with the people in your car, already you're do it, you're going above and beyond. So there is no expectation for you to solve their problems. But by you opting in, and I can see that you are willingly doing that, maybe your role is just to listen. And maybe- look, that's what Connie said. Connie got right. out of the car and she said, look, thanks so much. I said, I wish you all the best. Let me know how you go. Give me a follow on Instagram and then, mm-hmm. you know, let me know everything's, everything's okay. And she got out of the car and she said, just thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Yeah. That's enough. And, and that's what people need. And that made my day because, yeah. you know, at least for that, and I say it to a number of people, it's maybe it's their cathartic release yeah. where they get to get in the car. It's not family. It's not it's friends. It's anonymous. It is anonymous. Yes, yeah. they might be on a podcast and yes, they're happy for their name to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that anonymity yeah. which gives them that opportunity to go and, you know, really get rid of all their, their inner demons, yeah. you know, some of those concerns I have. So, mm. yeah, look, that's good. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that in some regards, if what I'm doing helps someone else mm. uh, or helps the person that was in the car. Yeah. Um, but bloody hell. But take the pressure off yourself because your job isn't to fix them or to solve the problem. You know, it might be handy for you to have um, a little card with numbers for Lifeline and, you know, Black Dog Institute or those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, and I do reference the Are You OK right. and that sort of stuff. And when Fitzy was in the car, the car last week, there was a, uh, another organisation called RAISE, which is the okay. mentoring right, uh, organisation. Um, and then literally that afternoon had another guy that was a youth worker get in the car and he mentioned that and mm-hmm. raised as well. Right. Um, but I do reference Are You OK and Lifeline mm. and Black Dog I haven't so much. Maybe I should. Beyond Blue is wonderful uh, for yeah, resources. Yeah, Beyond Blue as well. Yeah. Um, but I do, that's my problem. I think a bit like you where you're trying to 
be the nice person for everyone. Mm. I'm trying to be that, you know, um, voice of reason, which mm-hmm. for someone like me with the life that I've led, really, sometimes I think it's just me taking the piss. <laughs> you know, me being a voice of reason, it, <laughs> it doesn't ring true. But, but sometimes all people need is an objective ear to listen and reflect stuff back to them. That can be so powerful, particularly if it is anonymous and safe, you know, to just show some empathy and to just be able to reflect back. You know, it sounds like you're in a really tough situation and you're doing really well at the moment. Yeah. That can be so powerful. When you Do you have one-on-one sessions with people? Not a lot at the moment. No? I mean, when did you stop doing that? Um, I'd never say I stopped. You okay. know, for example, I have a couple of clients I work with at the moment. Um, it's all via Zoom, of course. Do you find that when you go into those, and look, my ex and I went and did some, you know, we saw some counsellors when we were separating. Great. Um, to be honest, I think I was telling the counsellor everything that she wanted to hear. Hopefully she saw that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, again, when I saw a counsellor when I was younger, when I was um, sort of 15, mm-hmm. the counsellor, after a number of sessions, walked out and said, he's just telling me what I want to hear. Good skills. Great skills from the, the, yeah. the counsellor at the time. Yep. And it was true, I was. Because at the end of it, me, there was, there was if I did everything that she said I needed to do, I got a free cricket bat. <laughs> and oh my the cricket bat was the, the, the thing that I was, I was aiming for. <laughs> of course. But do you go into meetings now and start mm-hmm. the conversation and then find that for the next 45 minutes you've not said anything but they've just talked? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely times when that happens. And sometimes that session is just about venting. You know, that, like you were saying, sometimes people just need to let off steam. That's, that's a really important function to, ho- to be able to hold the space for someone and make it safe for them to do that. How, okay, how do you do that? What is the, what is the, what's the one tip you can give to me? Because mm-hmm. this is my safe space for them yep. in the car. What's the one tip you can give to me to afford that person that space that they need? Active listening. Funny, that's what Ben says. He's, my Ben's the mate that does the editing. He's the other right. dad at the school. Right. And he says, sometimes you get caught up in the conversation, and I do, uh, and they're actually listening. In fact, my ex, mm-hmm. to her credit on this point, <laughs> um, many, many years ago, because we were together 10 years, separated four, so it's been 14 right. years. Early in the piece, she said, sometimes you need to stop talking mm. and just listen. And I now do that where if I got excited, I would talk over the top. Yeah. Not to be rude, but because I wanted... Excited. Yeah, I was yeah. excited. Yeah. But now I've found that my greatest skill is actually stopping. Silence. Yeah, which is bloody hard for someone that likes a chat. It is. But sometimes there's gold in the silence. Yeah, that's true. That's true. In fact, some of the people who get in the car will say, look, I haven't got a story to tell, but by the time we get to the end, they've got an amazing story. Yeah. You just give them that chance to... Yeah, and that's very Aussie. Yeah, to play is. down, you know, what I have to offer. What's next on the uh, the cards for you? Married at First Sight, are you filming now? We are. Yep, we're right slap bang in the middle of it. What do they look like? What are the contestants? <laughs> I know you can't give anything away, but um, what's sure. your gut feel? Well, what I can say is this year is very different. I think we went quite extreme last season. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of feedback from the audience was they weren't really on board with it. You know, the audience found it a bit extreme. And, and so did we, to be honest. Um, so this year we've got more people on board who could be your next door neighbour. 
Is that right? More relatable, more real people, more more real relationship issues already are coming out. Um, you know, I think one of the execs at Channel 9 said something like, this year we've got people who are looking for love, not fame. And I like That's that. That's a big difference. Yeah. There is a big difference in that because I think last yeah. year, you're right, some of the people on that show were just there to increase their following and or their portfolio. Yeah. Which is quite a sad reflection if that, that you, if you're supposed to be there for love. Yeah. There'd be a shitload of people out there that would rather find love than That's right. Than and fame. it's not fair. It's not fair to those people who missed out. How do you reckon I'd go on the show? I'd love to see you on the show. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Look, the fact that you're so open to talking about your feelings and dissecting relationships tells me that you'd be a good you'd be a good player in the, in the show. <laughs> because, you know, that's what we want is that authentic open vulnerability. Do you know it's it's only in the last I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years I've actually become like that. Right. I think for many years having prior daughters to that, must help. It does, and my, I know my, there's a battle with my daughter, my youngest one at the moment, who's terribly upset about the fact that mum and dad aren't getting back together. Oh, okay. Like, How old is she? Eight. Oh, um, it's a lot to get her head around. Especially, and well, I think That's and hard. my oldest daughter last night had the wise words to say that when we first separated, she was only five, mm. and back then she didn't really understand it. Now she understands it more. She doesn't like it. Yeah. And I get that. Yeah. It's hard communicating that, but um, my honesty... In fact, I've been more honest with myself in the last four years when talking to other people than what I have in my whole life. Wow. Because I think, and I've said this to other people, I think my life was a lie for 45 years. How so? Um, a bit like you did, but maybe not in the same ways. I would just tell people what they wanted to hear mm. and not lie in that sense. It was more, I don't know how to put it, um... That's a really tough question. I don't know. I, I, I would often do everything for other people to ensure that they felt good at my own expense. Right. And if that meant that I became part of the in crowd mm. or part of the group of people that I thought were good for me, mm. then I would do and say what was required to get there. Not illegally, and I don't mean mm. that in that sense. It sure. was just, um, I don't know, I'm not explaining it very well, but uh, there came a point when I separated that for the first two years, it was all about the girls. Mm. Everything was about the girls. Yeah. There was no relationship. Um, there was you know, no thought of a relationship. Yeah. It's only now that I've realized that um, you know, me being honest with myself mm. uh, means I can be honest with someone else. Tough. Tells me you're ready for a relationship. 100% I think I am. Mm. Um, I just don't know if it's on married at first sight. No. <laughs> Maybe it is. Maybe this time next year we're yeah. having a different conversation if yeah. I haven't found someone in between. But yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a tough one, actually, Mel. I'd My daughters, I think, a try. Oh. It's a commitment. Yeah, I know it is. Mm -hmm. I know it is, and it's not the time or the money. It's just the. You're not going to meet tire kickers there. Yeah, no, and it's just the aggravation of just, you know, you see, because it... I want to find love quickly. I don't mean... Okay, that's a ridiculous statement. But not, not in that sense. Seriously, I mean, I want mate. To find, I want to find that... You've got to let go of that. Okay. You can't... It's like saying, I want to run a marathon quickly. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. You know, and, and if you have that 
eagerness to do it quickly and get it done, then you're going to have you're going to go into a date with the wrong energy. Yeah. Aren't you? Oh, it's been four years. Yeah, and you you're just becoming ready now. Yeah. You haven't been ready for four years. Oh God, no. No. God, no. In fact, not up until maybe not so long ago, I don't think I was ready to be honest. Yeah. Um. It's only now that, and look, it's funny. We moved from Paddington to Waverley, the girls and I, mm-hmm. um, four weeks ago. Okay. That to me, I think, was a turning point in my life. Right. Where we've been Paddington for nine years, mm-hmm. phenomenal community. Mm. Um, but for me personally, I think it was just me getting out of the house that we're in. Yeah. Change of school for my youngest daughter, going from where she's now. She's joining a sister here in the city next year. Okay. New house. Uh, just a whole new headspace. Yeah, new and chapter. I th- yeah, new chapter. And I think closing one fully yeah. and opening this new one has just really mm. given me the opportunity to look at things a bit differently. Well, it's an energetic shift, isn't it? I don't know how much sleep I've lost over wondering about who the next one's going to be, which is a shit way to look at it. You're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. Yeah, but I keep thinking to myself... If I make 60, I'll be surprised. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. Hmm. But I want to make the next 10 years awesome with yeah. someone. Yeah. I don't want to, Yeah, I'm happy to wait, but I don't want to wait too long. Yeah. So then what's stopping you from investing some time in something like an eHarmony or an RSVP or something that is more in-depth? Why are you wasting your time with the tinders of the world? You're dancing around the surface. I don't know something stopping you you've told me it's not time or money no it's not don't know actually I think maybe don't know I made that that reference earlier about the grammatical issues Mm -hmm. it's an excuse it is an excuse and I think I'm putting up every excuse I possibly can about finding someone even though I want to find someone is there a fear of success I think it's a fear of failure to be honest Okay. I think I failed rejection. at the last... Well, not rejection. I think rejection's never been my issue. Okay. Um, I have, there's not been much rejection in my life. <laughs> Clearly. Actually, no, there's been a lot. But, um, no, look, I, I think I failed at the last one. Did you fail or did the relationship end? Uh, probably probably handy glove, to be honest. I think there was a bit of failure on both, both of our parts where we just didn't work at it hard enough when we probably should have. Um, we just got into a rut. We got into the same routine and we didn't work on ourselves. We didn't work on us as a relationship. What does it do to you now when you tell yourself that your last relationship was a failure? I've got to make the next one work. But what does it do using that word? What does that do to failure? you? Failure? Yeah. It just reminds me of what I grew up like, mm-hmm. to be honest. Because mm-hmm. as I said to you in my, like, when I seen that note yesterday... Um, Having been adopted, having been kicked out of home, mm-hmm. I saw those as huge failures. Okay. And never, you know, I was saying to my daughter, I said to my daughter last night when she was saying, I said, you live a really good life, sweetie. Yeah. And she says, I know. And she said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. Mm-hmm. And and she said, you'd never hit me, would you? I said, no, I, I would I never have, never mm. will. I, on my life, I never would. And I said, you got to understand, when I grew up, I got hit a lot. Mm. And... When I got kicked out of home when I was 17, that was, I, I, to me, that was the biggest failure, one of my biggest failures at the time. Um, you know, in my career, I've made some stupid decisions. In my life, I've made some stupid decisions. Can I just challenge you on using the term failure about things that happened to you as a child? 
Yeah, well, okay, I take a lot of ownership with that though because... Maybe too much. Yeah, but now I'm at the age I am, I also have the, the mentality that it's, it's too late to change it. Sure, but you can reframe it. You don't have to look at that and say, I was kicked out of the house when I was a 17-year-old child and that was a failure on my part. You're a child. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, your relationship with your wife, you had control over. Sure. You're an adult, two people in a relationship, you can influence how things turn out. Yeah. So using the same word to describe the end of that relationship, to describe being kicked out of home, isn't very fair on you. Yeah, but if I'm being honest, I was probably more of a failure in our relationship than what I was as a child. I acknowledge that part. Um, Why do you need to use the word failure at all? Oh, okay. Uh, Maybe not failure. Maybe we just weren't meant to be together forever. So the relationship ended? Absolutely, yeah, it did. The success was our kids. Mm -hmm. Like the crowning glory. Mm. What has been, always will be. Um, And without them, there's no way it would have lasted anywhere near the time we did. Mm -hmm. We both acknowledge that part. Mm, the reality of the situation was we stayed together too long. But by staying together as long as we did, we got two amazing kids. You and know, there's, what there's lessons, quick you know, there must have been amazing lessons in that that you'll take into your next relationship. So you've grown through that. Yeah, I would like to think so. Mm. I'd like to think so. I think I'm much more, I think I'm probably not calmer now. Mm. You know, I think in the relationship, the old one, it was just um, very go. Like we just, it was always about where to get to the next level. Mm. Um, in many aspects, and I think we, we've there was a lot that was foregone because of that. But mm. um, I don't know. I don't know. I would. Can I make a suggestion? Please. That's what. I, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if framing your marriage as a failure is one of the things that's blocking you from moving forward, particularly because you're tying it up with, and what if the next one's a failure too? I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit and your ex-wife. What if you were to frame that differently? I don't know, it's pretty hot in here, isn't it? <laughs> the AC's on 18. Yeah, right. It's not well, hot, mate. It's getting a bit sweaty, I can tell you. <laughs> um, I don't know, it's, it's tough. I don't think, I've never ever forgiven anybody. Okay, well, there's another thing that's blocking you from moving into your relax- next relationship. Yeah. And I think, but I've done that all my life. Like, I don't forgive my parents, I don't forgive, forgive my adoptive parents, I don't forgive friends that have walked away. Maybe that's where you need to start. Yeah, but again, it's getting late. You're not dead yet. No, I'm not. I'm not. But there, there, are, there are certainly some things that I can do to, to change. And I've done a lot to where mm. I am today, like in my head. Yeah, I can hear that. Like it's I've yeah. such a better space. Yeah. Um, you know, my daughters say to me, do you miss your mum? I'm like, no. Mm. Do you miss your dad? No. Mm. Um, and I don't, I actually don't miss them because of the fact that they walked out when they did. Mm. And, you know, that's why vicariously I live my childhood through my children now. Yeah. Um, it's you like, know, almost like a second chance, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm there for having missed an assembly, yeah. swimming carnival, sports Great. carnival. I was on the PNC for seven years, all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. You know, yeah. all the little things yeah. that my parents never did yeah. are so incredibly important to me now mm. so that my kids don't have that feeling that when they're older, Yes. That I wasn't present. So yeah. it's it, that, that to me is the, the toughest part of, of having kids is not yeah. wanting to let them down. And I think by us separating, we did let them down. But if we hadn't have done that, we'd be in a much worse position. Yeah. We'd be fighting all the time. 
Um, so I don't know, maybe I just need to relook at the way I categorise things. I don't know. Have you ever, back to that theme of forgiveness, have you ever written letters to your biological and adoptive parents? See, my adoptive, my biological mum, I rang her when my young, my oldest daughter was born to say that you're a grandmother and I was the first to actually provide a child within that side of the family. And when I spoke to her, I said that Gay Rhonda is Christian and she said, hi, you know, what do you want? And I said, I just wanted to let you know you're a grandmother. And she said, Christian, I don't want to talk to you. So that was 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and I was actually quite glad she said that because that was at the, at the behest of my ex, right. where she said, can you ring her and just let her know and also find out if there's any genetical issues in the mm. family because it'd be nice to know these things. Yeah. And that was very soundly... Shut down. Shut down. My adoptive mother, I don't have that affection to her like a mother and a son. I've never. I've always found it really hard to say I love you because I just don't feel that connection. I think me writing a letter is me potentially saying what needs to be said but is not meant. You don't need to send it. What if you just wrote letters to those two women in your life, say, with no intention of sending it? Because I actually think what I'd write would be a load of bullshit. No, not for anyone else to read, so it doesn't need to be bullshit. You're the only one who ever sees it. It's got to be real. Everything you'd want to get off your chest to say to those two women. Yeah, I don't know. What can be really powerful is doing that and also finding it in yourself to say, having said all of that, thank you for these things and goodbye. Goodbye's been said. Mm-hmm. But it, goodbye's been said without any... Any closure. Right. 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 So where does the next... Where's, let's get off me for a bit. Okay. Where, does, where, does, where does Mel see herself in the next five years? Do you married, married at first sight will still be kicking on? I, I think it's going to make a resurgence. You think so? I think there may have been a bit of a dip last season but I think we're on track again awesome to do things a bit differently this year and I think a return to love that's a nice thing still lots of challenge and lots of conflict and all the stuff that you know happens in relationships and that people love watching but it's different so yes I I'm confident that it will go on for a few more years um, but I've got my own projects as well. I'm writing a book. I'm producing my own TV series that I'm pitching at the moment. I'm. What's that built around? It's all around the theme of building confidence. Awesome. So I've got the book coming out. I've got an online program around that as well. Do you want to give a shout out to the online program? It's not ready yet, but oh, it's, okay, but it's coming. Okay. It's coming. So in order for people to get on the waiting list, um, they can start by um, going to the link in my Instagram bio. And downloading the free self-care checklist. Okay. That'll get them on my radar so that, you know, when the wait list opens. Do you think I need to do that? Why not? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's aimed at women. Okay. Well then, okay. Well then, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't say that. I didn't. No, okay. All right. No, then scrap yeah. that. You, you, let, the women, let the women take it on Leave board. Leave it to the women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> See previous note about feminism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. true, true, yeah. true, true. Um, when are you next on set? Uh, next week. What's the rest of the week got in store for you? 
Um, we've got a publicity photo shoot later this week, which is always fun. Yeah. Um, which is basically just playing dress ups and getting nice. in front of the camera and showing off. So yeah. it's pretty much what I've been doing all my life. Now, who's the new girl you, you're, <laughs> you're working with? Yes, Alessandra Rampolo. I saw some, obviously, you know, not trolling you, but I was but. on Instagram. <laughs> um, and saw that there were some shots she's taken wonderful. of you. Oh, I love her. So she's my new co-host. Awesome. So Trisha left the production and, and Alessandra has stepped into her spot. Okay. I won't say replaced her because they're, they're both very different, have very different roles. Yep. So Alessandra is a sexologist. And so she's taking the conversations with our couples to a whole new level. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't it's know, don't fascinating. Know what, I'm not going to ask what a sexologist does. An expert on sex. Well, literally, an expert on sex. Aren't we all? <laughs> you might think you are. Well, I so certainly sure. don't. Yeah, and, uh, neither do I. Mom, I think I've got a lot to learn. Yeah, you're <laughs> and I'm you're learning a lot from Alessandra already. Yeah. <laughs> even, even how to be sexy in a, in a selfie. She's teaching me that. Really? That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I do need some help then. Oh, um, she's fantastic. And it's a whole new dynamic for her, John, and I on the couch as well, which is fun. You know, it's, it's a whole new energy. Yeah, that's you know, nice. Which is, it's injected a new life into the show. What does the male bring to that, that, that group? Just a different perspective? Yeah, he, he does. He can definitely jump to that sort of bloke perspective in a situation, but he also does a lot of the bad cop, I find. I don't know if that's intentional. Are but you the good cop? Sometimes. I play bad cop as well, like certainly with the men and, and the women too, but I, I do a lot of calling out people's behaviour. Yeah, nice. Um, I don't let people get away with things. Like, I make them accountable. So, we all, look, there's overlap in all of our roles. But, um, oh, we're having a lot of fun this year. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Mm. Um, we're just about back to where we started. We are. Literally 90 minutes to the to the minute. Wow. Um, honestly, I, I'm really grateful for your time. I know you're a very busy person. You've got a lot on, as we, we've heard through the, uh, through the chat. Mm. Why did you say yes to doing this? I ask each person, each of these celebrities that jump in the car, why they say yes, because you don't have to, and I'm greatly, mm. greatly appreciative of it, but why did you say yes? Curiosity. I, I like I like that there's obviously, you have initiative, and there's an entrepreneurial nature to what you're doing, and with what we were saying before about you kind of being like the modern day barman, I, I was intrigued to understand more about why you do what you do and you've made that quite clear to me and what do you think now i can see that you know because of the i guess fractured upbringing that you've experienced you've you've got a real fascinating fascination for people and what makes them tick and i can see you really have a real empathy for people i can see you'd be a good listener yeah i'm getting better Mm. i'm getting better i love what i do yeah it's the first in the world we didn't realize until not long ago that it's the first uber driver that has passengers telling their own real stories the celebrity part obviously there's you know james corden and those sort of guys mm. that do their oh we forgot to sing we're not singing oh, we're not singing no. um <laughs> but yeah it's the first in the world where an uber driver actually has a podcast where people are telling their own stories in their own words and i love that wow, i love cool. the fact that and you know it's great that uh we get the support that we do from the people that want to tell their stories and also mm. the support from people like yourself and the other celebrities as well. I'm obviously very grateful for, for your time. The book that I've given you, yes. A Fortunate Life, um, I think when you read it, you'll probably understand where some of the parallels are drawn from my childhood. Right. Um, but for me, that's just that's my go-to book. Mm-hmm. I read it once a year. Wow. Uh, 
and hopefully if you're sitting you know on a sunny day on the beach or something or if you're on a plane soon home to see your family hopefully that you can uh read that and Fantastic. Um, I didn't mean to leave the price tag on there, but I went and bought the last three in the shop. Did you? I've literally running these and suburbs out of their fortunate life. Wow. Thank you. I That's look forward pleasure. to reading that. Yeah. Um, you okay? You want back at caffeine? Yeah. Yeah. Back at my starting place. I love it. Thank you. Um, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much. I think we got a bit too deep in some of my stuff, but <laughs> Ben said to me, he said, don't get caught up in yourself. Uh, it's all about Mel. You know I was going to go there no matter what, yeah, don't I you? Know, but I, just, I was trying not to. You didn't really have a choice. Yeah, I was trying not to get into it, but um, that's your that's your job. That's going to happen. That is going to happen. But you did well at deflecting, so well done. Yeah, thank you. I'll get out and say thanks to you. <laughs> Air conditioning on it is bloody hot in here now. It's really hot. Yeah. Well, that was Mel. And she was a good chat. Really enjoyed that with her. Really grateful for her time. She was very giving with her career and obviously with some advice. And she just said to me outside of the car, she said, you knew I was gonna go there and I did. Um, but yeah, she was fun. I really enjoyed that uh, chat with you, Mel. Looking forward to watching Married at First Sight and see what insights you can give. Sounds like it's gonna be a very exciting season. There she is, just walking across the pedestrian crossing. Just gave her a little wave goodbye. She was awesome. Thanks, Mel. Appreciate that.